names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. Oh, society sucks and we don't need it. It's killing your kids, so why do you feed it? They'll tell you to stay, but you don't need to heed it. You can give them the finger. There's no time to linger. Frog legs. Welcome to Escaping Society, episode 45, Quinn's Boiling Frog. I'm Teresa. And I'm still Gumby. And we are drinking Irish whiskey. It's Saturday. And we are, well, I'm pet sitting, so we're kind of using this house as a place to record the podcast. And it's one of the uh, silver linings of being uh, bums, I guess. Well, (laughs) I guess you're a hobo right now. I'm a bum. But being unemployed largely, we can day drink. Hells yeah. And we're going to attempt to read... Daniel Quinn's Boiling Frog. This is, again, uh, I guess, well, it's not drunk history, but it's drunk philosophy. Well, I'm not drunk. I am drunk already. And Quinn, you know, like, the story of B has especially come up a lot this season um, for us in our podcast. And so many of us, I imagine a lot of our listeners, are not only familiar with Quinn's work, but are... um, largely inspired like i think a lot of us found daniel quinn first and ishmael and from there we moved on to you know maybe john zerzan Derek jensen um a lot of these other people that kind of built on that but for myself i can speak for myself daniel quinn was one of the first books of this nature that i found that got me thinking along these completely different lines about our culture um and the boiling frog is an essay in the story of b which I highly recommend the whole book. But, uh, yeah, this, uh, I was just so blown away by this really succinct um, walking through the 10,000-year history of our culture. And I used to share this on Facebook, like, at least once a year. Um, There's this website, I think it's called, like, oilcrash.com, that you can find it. And I just copy and paste and put it segment by segment. And I also have it on our website under the Recommended Reading tab. So I'm really excited to be sharing it in this venue. So is there anything else before we get started? This is not just a reading. Don't think that this is just going to be a reading of it. We're going to insert some of our thoughts and um, some other things that we've learned just from trying to take a critical view of Quinn's Boiling Frog. Yeah, and for the most part, more than any of our other episodes... (laughs) Okay, maybe I'm a little wrong. Our other episodes... This is largely just Quinn's words, so we're going to be, like Teresa said, kind of um, injecting a little of our own commentary as we go, but mostly we're just reading The Boiling Frog, an essay in the back of the book, The Story of Bee. So I'm drinking this shit like water. So with that... Um, <laughs> Yay! Let me see. Um, I will start with... Oh, I hope you don't lose that quote. Okay. The Boiling Frog. 18th of May. Um, Shes... Damn it, I wrote these things down phonetically so I could pronounce them right, and now my notes are a mess. Chospe elos, Wanfred Radignol. System thinkers have given us a useful metaphor for a certain kind of human behavior in the phenomenon of the boiled frog. The phenomenon is this. 
If you drop a frog in a pot of boiling water, it will, of course, frantically try to clamber out. But if you place it gently in a pot of tepid water and turn the heat on low, it will float there quite placidly. As the water gradually heats up, the frog will sink into a tranquil stupor, exactly like one of us in a hot bath. And before long, with a smile on its face, it will unresistingly allow itself to be boiled to death. We all know stories of frogs being tossed into boiling water. For example, a young couple being plunged into catastrophic debt by an unforeseen medical emergency. A contrary example, an example of the smiling boiled frog, is that of a young couple who gradually used their good credit to buy and borrow themselves into catastrophic debt. Cultural examples exist as well. About 6,000 years ago, the goddess-worshipping societies of old Europe were engulfed in a boiling up of our culture that Maria Gimbutas called Kurgan Wave Number 1. They struggled to clamor out, but eventually succumbed. The Plains Indians of North America, who were engulfed in another boiling up of our culture in the 1870s, constitute another example. They struggled to clamor out over the next two decades, but they too finally succumbed. A contrary example, an example of the smiling boiled frog phenomenon, is provided by our own culture. When we slipped into the cauldron, the water was a perfect temperature. Not too hot, not too cold. Can anyone tell me when that was? Anyone? Oh, me. Blank faces, except for you, Teresa. <laughs> I've already told you, but I'll ask again a different way. When did we become we? Where and when did the thing called us begin? Remember, east and west, twins of a common birth. Where? And when? Well, of course, in the Near East, about 10,000 years ago. That's where our peculiar defining form of agriculture was born, and we began to be we. That was our cultural birthplace. That was where and when we slipped into that beautifully pleasant water, the Near East, 10,000 years ago. As the water in the cauldron slowly heats, the frog feels nothing but a pleasant warmth, and indeed that's all there is to feel. A long time has to pass before the water begins to be dangerously hot, and our own history demonstrates this. For fully half our history, the first 5,000 years, signs of distress are almost non-existent. The technological innovations of this period bespeak a quiet life, centered around hearth and village. Sun-dried brick, kiln-fired pottery, woven cloth, the potter's wheel, and so on. But gradually, imperceptibly, signs of distress begin to appear like tiny bubbles at the bottom of a pot. What shall we look for as signs of distress? Mass suicides? Revolution? Terrorism? No, of course not. Those come much later, when the water is scalding hot. 5,000 years ago, it was just getting warm. Folks mopping their brows were grinning at each other and saying, isn't it great? You'll know where to find the signs of distress if you identify the fire that was burning under the cauldron. It was burning there in the beginning, was still burning after 5,000 years, and is still burning today in exactly the same way. It was and is the great heating element of our revolution. It's the essential. It's the sine qua non of our success, if success is what it is. Speak. Someone tell me what I'm talking about. Agriculture. Agriculture, this gentleman tells me. No, not agriculture. One particular style of agriculture. One particular style that has been the basis of our culture from its beginnings 10,000 years ago to the present moment. The basis of our culture and found in no other. It's ours. It's what makes us us. For its complete ruthlessness toward all other life forms on this planet and for its unyielding determination to convert every square meter on this planet to the production of human food. I've called it totalitarian agriculture. 
Ethologists, students of animal behavior, and a few philosophers who have considered the matter know that there is a form of ethics practiced in the community of life on this planet, apart from us, that is. This is a very practical, you might say Darwinian, sort of ethics, since it serves to safeguard and promote biological diversity within the community. According to this ethics, followed by every sort of creature within the community of life, sharks as well as sheep, killer bees as well as butterflies, you may compete to the full extent of your capabilities, but you may not hunt down your comp competitors or destroy their food or deny them access to food. In other words, you may compete, but you may not wage war. This ethics is violated at every point by practitioners of totalitarian agriculture. We hunt down our competitors, we destroy their food, and we deny them access to food. That, indeed, is the whole purpose and point of totalitarian agriculture. Totalitarian agriculture is based on the premise that all the food in the world belongs to us, and there is no limit whatever to what we may take for ourselves and deny to all others. Totalitarian agriculture was not adopted in our culture out of sheer meanness. It was adopted because, by its very nature, it's more productive than any other style. And there are many other styles. Totalitarian agriculture represents productivity to the max, as Americans like to say. It represents productivity in a form that literally cannot be exceeded. Many styles of agriculture, not all but many, produce food surpluses. But, not surprisingly, totalitarian agriculture produces larger surpluses than any other style. It produces surpluses to the max. To the max. You simply can't outproduce a system designed to convert all the food in the world into human food. Totalitarian agriculture is the fire under our cauldron. Totalitarian agriculture it was, is, is what has kept us on the boil here for 10,000 years. So that's the first part of the, uh, this essay. And, you know, some things that kind of jump out at me when I'm thinking about this is he talks about East and West, twin, twins of a common birth. And uh, I used to really struggle with that. But he explains this more in other books where he says, you know, like, we tend to think of ourselves in the Western culture as very different from the Eastern culture, but so many things are the same. The food is under lock and key. We have uh, salvationist religions. Um, you know, it goes on and on. And he believes these lineages trace back to a common source 10,000 years ago. So that's what he means by East and West, twins of a common birth. Um, I got to wondering about this whole experiment, you know, if the boiling frog, is it true that if you place a frog in slowly boiling water that he won't jump out. And I got to thinking, in our culture, you know, all the shit that we do with animals and experiments we do on them, somebody must have done this. And sure enough, somebody has. Um, so the bottom line is that contemporary biologists say this is false, that actually a frog will jump out. Um, so frogs use thermoregulation which means they have to change locations, and it's a necessary survival strategy for ectotherms, which include frogs. So when the, the temperature starts changing, the natural thing for them to do is to be super sensitive to this, even more sensitive than we might be, hmm. and to recognize that it's changing. It just doesn't stay delightfully warm until they're dead. They try to um, get out of that pot. And <laughs> there's this German physiologist, Friedrich Goltz, in 1869, and he started doing experiments searching for the soul. Um, and he demonstrated that a frog that has had its brain removed will remain <laughs> in slowly heated water, while an intact one that still has its brain does not. That's us, the one without the brain. That's us. So I'm thinking, like, 
probably a lot of shit. If you take its brain out, we'll do like just kind of sit there. I mean, I don't really, <laughs> I don't get what this guy was trying to prove. Um, it reminds science. me, it reminds me of this anecdote that's kind of about what's wrong with science. And the anecdote says there's a scientist, and he's got this frog, and um, <laughs> the frog he has trained to jump when he says jump. So the scientist amputates the, one of the frog's front legs, and he says, jump, and the frog still jumps. He amputates the other front leg, and he says, jump, and the f- poor frog tries to jump the best it can with just its two back legs. He amputates the third leg, uh, one of the back legs, and he says, jump, and the frog twitches, obviously trying to jump. Finally, the scientist amputates the last leg and says, jump, and the frog doesn't move. He says, jump, the frog doesn't move. So he takes out his little notepad and scribbles in it, um, when all of the frog's legs have been removed, frog has gone deaf. Oh, come on. So <laughs> that's what that reminded me of. And it um, reminded me, not necessarily that, but it reminded me of like all the brainless people in society that aren't trying to fucking escape it. So, yeah. Yeah, that is a good analogy. You know, <laughs> when, when our <laughs> brains are removed, we also stay in the slowly heating water. But an intact frog and an intact person, you know, that isn't being domesticated and having their brains turned to mush might recognize, shit, this is getting hot. Let's get out of here. It's not comfortable anymore. Exactly. But that's not the story of our culture. Um, He also describes the Plains Indians of North America, and he says how they have succumbed. And I know a lot of uh, Indians would probably object to this this thing he says because— Survivalism. I've I've heard a lot of Indians say, like, we're still fighting. Um, but he's talking about the late 1800s and I feel like, you know, I think I get what he's saying that the Indians, even though they're still resisting and fighting, now they're fighting from the inside. They've been inducted into the prison walls, kind of the way a lot of us that think of ourselves as anarchists feel like we're fighting. Um, we're not free of this. We have no idea what we do anymore without our culture. We just feel like this sucks. This isn't working. Whatever's out there, even if it's hard, even if we don't survive it, it's going to be an improvement. So... I kind of feel like that's one of the ideas that occurs to me about the, uh, the North American Indians succumbing. Um, and the tone that Quinn sets here, you know, it's kind of condescending, which I find in Quinn's writing a lot, you know, like he's sort of talking down to someone who's not um, nearly as smart as he is. And <laughs> I used to kind of get turned off to that. But then I realized, hell, we're not as smart as Quinn. We didn't write Ishmael. You know, and what that must be like for a guy that has, like, that kind of insight. You know, that piercing insight that so many of us have benefited from. You know, you read Ishmael, and, um, you know, it's like he's slowly walking the guy through it. Like, no, you're not thinking. You're not, turn on your brain. Think harder. You know, like he's talking to somebody that's really slow-witted. And indeed, as we're reading this, we realize... Shit, I don't know what I'd say either. I'm, I'm the slow-witted guy in this story. <laughs> and then you read, uh, what was that? If you turn the papers. Yeah, if they give you line paper, turn it sideways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my favorite, like, Quinn writing that showcases his condescending <laughs> attitude. And we had so much fun reading that because it's actually an interview with Daniel Quinn. It's not about Ishmael. It's like Daniel Quinn got somebody who wrote to him and invited her over and then like sort of tried to talk her through these ideas because she wanted to know, how, how do you think the way you do? Elaine. Yeah, her name was Elaine. And uh, <laughs> it's so funny because he's like, the way the book is written, she's a complete idiot. And I had fun like doing her voice like, mm, I don't know. 
<laughs> oh, you sure are smart, Mr. Quinn. <laughs> Which it was. Oh, we got so much joy from like reading that book. Which doesn't take anything away from the book. I highly recommend it. I mean, he makes some profound, like all of his books, insights. I'm but, Elaine. Uh, <laughs> I'm. A, I think we're all Elaine. Yeah. Uh, even though a lot of us like to pretend like we're Quinn. Mm. I've even heard arguments on some of these Ishmael Facebook pages of like, I've been B for 15 years. How long have you been B? Like, Come give on. me a fucking break. If you're arguing about who's B, you ain't B. Um, and was there anything else that you're thinking of as I, I read that, Teresa, that you want to no. mention before we go on? Nope. Um, well, one thing that occurs to me is there was this quote I was looking for that I had written down before, but I can't find it now. But he's describing um, how there's biodiversity, all this biomass, and how as we're using this totalitarian agriculture, another way of saying that is that we're, we're converting all this biomass that supports like so many creatures, so many animals, and we're eating it and turning it into human mass. And I thought that was a really interesting, you know, like it's one thing to think about overpopulation and more and more people, but it's another thing to think about what are those people made of? What's the matter that composes those people? Where's it coming from? And to realize that it is like cancer. We are acting like cancer cells because we're turning plants that fed other animals. That mass gets uh, rechanneled, you might say, into human food, which gets channeled into human flesh. So the more of us there are, the less matter there is in this like closed loop of planet Earth to be anything other than human. And that's kind of a bizarre way of looking at it. Um, I felt like that was a profound thought when I thought about that. And also he talks about this ethics. Um, and I know a lot of people would object to that too, you know, the ethics practiced by all species. Um, and ethics implies like a choice. Um, and at first I kind of objected to that, you know, because um, I used to be really against anthropomorphizing, um, you know, putting human traits, assigning them to other animals, because it seemed disrespectful to me. Like, you know, why do we need to pretend like they're human? There's things that are outside of the human sphere and experience. Um, but I realize there's a good side to anthropomorphizing too, because it puts you, helps you get into that animal's mindset. Um, and I think we do have a lot in common with the other creatures. And it also gives me more sympathy for the humans, you know, especially in our culture. We're in an unprecedented situation. I wondered if other animals, if they found themselves like you know, with these challenges and tools that we have, would they do the same thing? Um, and I don't know. I think maybe they would. So we're in this unprecedented situation of trying our find, to, to find our way out of a situation that, as far as we know, no other creature has ever found itself in before. Um, this, like, ethics of waging war on other species... Um, Teresa and I were recently taking a walk, and we came across these rednecks at the top of a hill, these people, and, like, the guy just, as we're walking up, he's like, we got hunting dogs out there, about 30-something of them, and we're running coyotes. We've already run about three down. And I didn't know what to say to this guy, you know? I was kind of unprepared. I wanted to say something smart-ass and scathing, but... I didn't want to say anything. I was just like, well, where are you running them, you know? Well, I hope your hunting dogs don't get hurt. And I was just sort of shell-shocked. Like, why the fuck are you messing with these coyotes? Teresa and I, when we go park our van out in the country, one of our favorite parts about parking our van out here is the coyote song. Oh, we always get quiet when we hear it. Mm -hmm. And it is so beautiful. Just like the elk bugling out west was out there. 
you know, and it's not the only song, like there's owls, but the coyotes seem to be to me like one of the prominent things. Mm -hmm. When they all sing, sometimes they surround you and it lights up the night and then like they all get quiet, like at the drop of a hat, just immediately. It's such a powerful thing. Why the hell would you want to, to torment the coyotes? And I've heard all the, the hunters arguments about how they're killing deer and all this shit. And I just, it doesn't make sense to me. If the coyotes are chasing down deer. They're taking down the weakest. They're strengthening the herd as natural predators predators have always done. And humans don't do that. We look for the trophies for the most part, at least in our culture. We look for the strongest to kill. Um, and not every hunter. I know that's not the ethics of every hunter, but most of them I run into, you know, one of the first things I hear a hunter say, and we've actually gotten told this recently by a hunter we encountered, wow, you could have got shot out here. You, almost, you, you might get shot. What kind of fucking asshole doesn't look at what they're shooting at? Yeah, if you think you might have shot a human by accident, you sure <laughs> the fuck ain't taking the time to figure out what kind of deer you're shooting at. Mm. So that's a typical hunter we run into in North Carolina. Um, and one last thought on what I just read. He talks about produ- productivity to the max. To the know? max. And I think about what's it going to take to change that, like, that's a hard thing to pull away from. If you found something that not only works, but is the most productive way of doing it to produce something that we all want, like food, wow, that's a hard thing to find your way out of because it's addictive. You're producing something that you might not need. We, we obviously don't need as much food. I mean, when you're a dumpster diver, you know this for a fact. We're producing more food than we need. Mm. But to pull away from a thing that has proved itself to work to the max, that's part of the challenge I, f- I find is how do we get into a whole nother mindset, a whole nother paradigm, a whole nother set of aspirations. Um, and I feel like part of that is kind of recognizing what it doesn't produce to the max, like contented people, like uh, a future for your children. You know, it's just one thing, food, but as they say, life is more than bread, bread alone or whatever that quote is. All right. Teresa? All right. Here we go. (laughs) Food availability and population growth. The people of our culture take food so much for granted that they often have a hard time seeing that there's a necessary connection between the availability of food and population growth. For them, I've found it necessary to construct a small illustrative experiment with laboratory mice. Imagine, if you will, a cage with movable sides so that it can be enlarged to any desired size. We begin by putting 10 healthy mice of both sexes into the cage, along with plenty of food and water. In just a few days, there will of course be 20 mice and we accordingly increase the amount of food we're putting in the cage. In a few weeks, as we steadily increase the amount of available food, there will be 40, then 50, then 60, and so on, until one day there is 100. And let's say that we've decided to stop the growth of the colony at 100. I'm sure you realize that we don't need to pass out little condoms or birth control pills to achieve this effect. That's I do like picturing a little mouse Fucking condom. hilarious. Like, I've practiced this. <laughs> All right, all we have to do is stop increasing the amount of food that goes into the cage. Every day we put in an amount 
that we know is sufficient to sustain a hundred mice and no more. This is the part that many find hard to believe, but trust me, it's the truth. The growth of the community stops dead. Not overnight, of course, but in very short order. Putting in an amount of food sufficient for 100 mice, we will find, every single time, that the population of the cage soon stabilizes at 100. Of course, I don't mean 100 precisely. It will fluctuate between 90 and 110, but never go much beyond those limits. On the average, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, the population inside the cage will be 100. Now, if we should decide to have a population of 200 instead of 100, we won't have to add aphrodisiacs to their diets or play erotic mouse movies for them. (laughs) (laughs) I like picturing that too. You're so nasty! Jerry does Dallas. Oh my God. We'll just have to increase the amount of food we put in the cage. If we put in enough food for 200, we'll soon have 200. If we put in enough for 300, we'll soon have 300. If we put in enough for 400, we'll soon have 400. If we put in enough for 500, we'll have 500. This but is, what about 600? This is so much fun to read when you're drunk. But this isn't a guess, my friends. This isn't a conjecture. This is a certainty. Of course you understand that there's nothing special about mice in this regard. The same will happen with crickets or trout or badgers or sparrows. But I fear that many people bridle at the idea that humans might be included in this list. Because as individuals, we're able to govern our reproductive capacities. They imagine our growth as a species should be unresponsive to the mere availability of food. Luckily, bleh, luckily, <laughs> luckily for the point I'm trying to make here, I have considerable data showing that, as a species, we are as responsive as any other to the availability of food. Three million years of data, in fact. For all but the last 10,000 years of that period, the human species was a very minor member of the world ecosystem. Imagine it. Three million years and the human race did not overrun the earth. There was some growth, of course, through simple migration from continent to continent, but this growth was proceeding at a glacial rate. It's estimated that the human population at the beginning of the Neolithic was around 10 million. 10 million, if you can imagine that. After 3 million years. Then, very suddenly, things began to change. And the change was that the people of one culture in one corner of the world developed a peculiar form of agriculture that made food available to people in unprecedented quantities. Following this, in this corner of the world, the population doubled in a scant 3,000 years. It doubled again, this time in only 2,000 years. In an eye blink of time, on the geologic scale, the human population jumped from 10 million to 50 million, probably 80% of them being practitioners of totalitarian agriculture, members of our culture, East and West. The water in the cauldron was getting warm, and signs of distress were beginning to appear. Whew, my goodness. 
So food availability and population growth. I get a kick out of how, how sometimes Quinn seems to get carried away with like his list of details. Like you remember when we were reading after Dachau and you get to that part where the uh, protagonist is crawling down into the sewers under uh, New oh, York. Oh, yeah. And then he so... goes into this excruciating oh, detail of exactly where the guy is putting his hands. I mean, this takes up like five pages of how the guy is like his technique for climbing down into the sewer. <laughs> so amidst all these like profound ideas, like sometimes the 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 devil gets in the details. Like <laughs> Maybe he's paid by the letter or something. So... In this section, I just wondered, like, I jot down little little questions I have. They're not nearly as profound as Gumby's questions. Boom. But I was wondering if anyone had ever actually conducted this type of mice population experiment in this way. Like, do we know that this actually happens and it's not just theoretical? Because, like, Gumby was talking about the boiling frog. Same thing. It's easy to just listen to somebody say, obviously, this is what happens. And actually, on one of these Daniel Quinn Facebook pages I mentioned, somebody recently asked this. They said they read Ishmael for the first time or blown away. And has there been any supporting, like, evidence of this, uh, what he says about population? So I I found this research that you did pretty interesting. All right, so I'm not sure what's going to happen here when I try to describe this to you, but I saw on a website this information about a guy by the name of John B. Calhoun, and he actually did do this type of research where he would make these, like, mouse cities, rat paradises, whatever you want to call it. And there was this one in particular that was really interesting. It was called Universe 25, and by the name of it... Um, the article was saying that you can tell that this is not the first time he's done this. It's number 25, or at least uh, in the series, it was number 25. And what he did was, um, this Calhoun guy, he created an area, um, it was actually adjacent to where he lived at, and he was doing an experiment about overpopulation with mice. And in this universe, he created 256 nesting boxes. Um, And there were little corridors and little, like, tunnels where the mice could go. And each of these nesting boxes could hold 15 mice. So if you do the math, and I hope I did this right because I used a calculator, then that universe was capable of holding over 3,800 mice. But they started out with four breeding pairs of healthy mice. And after a little bit of time of just the mice getting used to their surroundings they started to double in size every 55 days. The population doubled or the individual mice? The population. Oh, I didn't know if you were talking about fat mice. Mice get fat. Don't look at me like that. That's true, actually. Yeah, I was thinking that when you were talking about um, the the mice being fed and, like, while I know when I'm fed, I don't necessarily want to have sex and, like, procreate. Yeah, <laughs> Teresa be... <laughs> brought up a good point. Like, when I was, we were look, thinking about that mouse experiment, you like, what about mice just overeating? Like, does it necessarily equate to, like, more population? I thought that was kind of an interesting thing that I, I didn't have a ready answer for. And this Calhoun guy that's been doing the experiments, he was doing this since the 1940s with consistent results. He's, um, he's considered a Neo-Malthusian, Thomas Malthus. I believe Brian um, from Portland, oh, he was um, talking about, like, he's like, oh, you should read about Malthus. He's a, a 
character that I think is kind of, he's kind of like the anti-Daniel Quinn in his philosophy. Why? Oh, boy. All right. So Daniel Daniel Quinn was mostly concerned with, like, if we can feed the population, we will, and it's going to cause problems. But Malthus was like, if this population is growing, we can't feed them and think of all the problems that's going to cause. Oh, so it was a completely different yeah. problem that they were worried about. One yeah. was, like, Malthus is worried about the starving population yeah. that can't be fed. Quinn's worried about that we keep feeding the population yes. and they take over. Like, yes. Ah, yeah, interesting. So, um, because Calhoun was a neo-Malthusian, he believed that population growth would cause our demise by exhausting our natural resources, leading to starvation and conflict. But it wasn't that food and water were scarce in this universe 25 with the mice because they wanted it to be kind of like a paradise where, or a utopia where mice could continue to propagate. But past day 315 in the experiment, population growth slowed. More than 600 mice now lived in Universe 25. Now, I want you to listen to this thinking about our culture. Constantly rubbing shoulders on their way up and down the stairwells to eat, drink, and sleep. Mice found themselves born into a world that was more crowded every day. And there were far more mice than meaningful social roles. With more and more peers to defend against, males found it difficult and stressful to defend their territory. So they just completely abandoned that. Normal social discourse within the mouse community broke down, and with it, the ability of mice to form social bonds. The failures and dropouts of this mice population congregated in large groups in the middle of the enclosure, their listless withdrawal occasionally interrupted by spasms and waves of pointless violence. The victims of these random attacks became themselves attackers, left on their own in nests subject to invasion, Nursing females attacked their own young. Oh, I'm about, I almost missed a whole page of notes. <clears throat> Lone females retreated to isolated nesting boxes on the penthouse level of this enclosure. Other males, a group Calhoun, Calhoun termed the beautiful ones, never sought sex, and they never fought. They just ate, slept, and groomed themselves. What are... I don't get the beautiful ones. What makes them the beautiful ones? Is he trying to say this is like the 1% of the, the mice Yeah, or it kind of was. He was very anthropomorphic about his experiments, and that actually allowed people to – it felt like when he wrote up his research, it was more accessible because it was kind of like a story, and I'll, tell, I'll say more about that later. But these beautiful ones were just wrapped up in their narcissistic introspection. But elsewhere, cannibalism, pansexualism – and violence became endemic. What do you mean by pansexualism? Like everything was just like, they were just like, mm, so They were humping like everything. They were just humping everything. Mouse society had collapsed. On day 560, a little more than 18 months into the experiment, the population peaked at 2,200 mice. Now remember, it was capable of holding like over 3,800 mice, but this was just... This was it. The growth ceased. A few mice survived past the weaning stage until day 600, 
after which there were very few pregnancies and no surviving young. As the population had ceased to regenerate itself, its path to extinction was clear. There would be no recovery, not even after the numbers dwindled back to those of the heady early days of the universe. The mice had lost the capacity to rebuild their numbers. Many of the mice that could still conceive, such as the beautiful ones, and their secluded singleton female counterparts, had lost the social ability to do so. In a way, the creatures had ceased to be mice long before their death. Calhoun called this the first death. It ruined their spirit and their society as thoroughly as the later second death of their physical bodies. Now, Calhoun was employed by the National Institute for Mental Health, the NIMH at the time, um, and they they funded his studies. What do you call it? NIMH? Yeah, NIM. Yeah, like the secret of NIM? Yeah. No so shit. I was going to save this for later, but actually this was the inspiration for Mrs. Frisbee and the Rats of NIM, the book. Wow. Yeah, and he, he actually built a rat city for them, um, which, again, like consistently it would turn into explosive violence, hypersexual activity, followed by asexuality and destruction. One more part of this, and then I'll be done. Could the results from mice and rats be the same for humans? Once the numbers of individuals capable of filling roles greatly exceeded the number of roles in, in society... Calhoun said, only violence and disruption of social organization can follow. I wonder if this is why we must have jobs. You know, like how everybody's so worried in the economy for everyone to have jobs. Like, if we don't have a social role, is this our destiny? Like, do we just have too many people and not enough roles for us in society? I think we need some kind of purpose in life. Teresa and I struggle with that. Like, if we're turning away from the wage slavery, like, we don't want this assigned purpose um, what do we fill it with? And we're still experimenting with that because obviously tribal peoples all over the globe didn't participate in wage slavery, but they found purpose. They were hunters. Yeah. They were warriors. They were something. So if you just reject the bullshit that society gives us, the little rat race, the maze, you got to find something else. You can't just leave it there. And Calhoun further goes on to say, individuals born under these circumstances, so like overpopulation, will be so out of touch with reality as to be incapable even of alienation. What does that mean? I mean, they can't even just, like, be by themselves. Oh, shit. Their most complex behaviors will become fragmented. Acquisition, creation, and utilization of ideas appropriate for life in a post-industrial, cultural, conceptual, technological society <laughs> Say that again. will have been blocked. <laughs> So basically, um, if you're living in this overpopulated world, you're not going to be able to function after some time. He does have a caveat, though. So he wanted his research to actually be reflected on positively. He consistently found that those animals that were better capable of handling high numbers of social interactions were able to handle the situation better. So in other words, if you were a mouse, or I guess a human, that's able to just interact with people on and on and number after number of people, 
then you would be able to be like a winner in hell, so to speak. Hmm. So you would be able to cope. So in other words, a mouse in a more natural environment, because it hasn't been like kind of, you might say, gone through the trial of fire of all this fucking overpopulation and shit. Are you saying that that mouse might, given a, a challenge outside of its normal challenges, might succumb, might lose, whereas this mouse in the population is somehow toughened? Is that what you mean by you might be able to win in hell? Well, just like humans are different I mean, I don't want to go off on a super huge tangent here, but, like, what he's saying is if you're a human that's able to handle all of this stress, handle all of these, like, you know, massive amounts of people and and situations, then even though you're in a hell of sorts, you'll be better capable of handling it. Oh, so he's saying that even within this, there's kind of a selection going on. Yeah. And as for the losers, Calhoun found, they sometimes became more creative, Exhibiting an unmouse-like drive to innovate, they were forced to in order to survive. Um, he also argued that man was a positive animal. So this is his uh, drawing a line between his mouse experiments and man. That if man were more adaptive, or he is adaptive, in other words, his creativity and design could solve our problems. So, in other words, if we are headed towards an overpopulated Earth, hopefully man, being the positive, adaptive, adaptable, creative species that he is, um, maybe he could figure this out. No surprise, Calhoun was an advocate of colonization of space. (laughs) Um, Because, of course, it's just a factor of, of space. Yeah, and isn't it always like we have to figure out the problem rather than recognize that something is a problem and not do it anymore? Like, mm-hmm. to me, that's the insanity. But thank you for that that research. Man, that's really interesting. Yeah, I had never heard of this guy before. And, you know, it, it really pisses me off that I was supposedly like a psychology student in college. And I know it was just a bachelor's degree and I wasn't serious about it or anything. But I don't hear about this shit. I don't hear about any of this shit. Yeah. Maybe well, I just read so much crap. I've got one question, if you can try to answer it in about a sentence or two before we move on to my section. After reading Quinn, what he said about the mouse experiments, you know, so definitively, and researching what you just researched, do you feel like Quinn was right? Quinn was right with a caveat? Or Quinn was wrong? Well, after rereading that section, because I was like, well, what is he talking about? This is the whole basis of his boiling frog, is that, like, if we have enough food, we're going to keep propagating. We're going to keep, you know, whatever, fucking and having babies. I'm drunk, okay? Here it is. So, (laughs) So then I saw that he was like, as individuals, we might think that, but as a species, there is three million or whatever he says, years of research that says otherwise. And I do think that as a species, it's it's spot on. Of course, as individuals, like I was saying, or like he was saying, we have the opportunity to say like, no, I've got enough food, but I don't necessarily need to have like 10 kids. Um, and also what this uh, Calhoun was talking about in his experiment, the behavioral sink, that's an interesting term that you should look up, behavioral sink, S-I-N-K. It's when the population gets so 
much that it causes all sorts of violence and other behaviors that are considered to be uh, negative. All right. And now we're moving on to the timeline. This is my favorite part of the boiling This is Quinn again, by the way. We're going back to Quinn. Going back to Quinn. Signs of distress, 5,000 to 3,000 BCE. It was getting crowded. Think of that. People used to imagine that history is inevitably cyclical, but what I'm describing here has never happened before. In all of three million years, humans have never been crowded anywhere. But now, the people of a single culture, our culture, are learning what it means to be crowded. It was getting crowded, and overworked, overgrazed land was becoming less and less productive. There were more people, and they were competing for dwindling resources. The water is heating up around the frog, and remember what we're looking for, signs of distress. What happens when more people begin competing for less? That's obvious. Every school child knows that. When more people start competing for less, they start fighting. But of course, they don't just fight at random. The town butcher doesn't battle the town baker. The town tailor doesn't battle the town shoemaker. No, the town's butcher, baker, tailor, and shoemaker get together to battle some other town's butcher, baker, tailor, and shoemaker. We don't have to see bodies lying in the field to know that this was the beginning of the age of war that has continued to the present moment. What we have to see is war-making machinery. I don't mean mechanical machinery, chariots, catapults, siege machines, and so on. I mean political machinery. Butchers, bakers, tailors, and shoemakers don't organize themselves into armies. They need warlords, kings, princes, emperors. It's during this period, starting around 5,000 years ago, that we see the first states formed for the purpose of armed defense and aggression. It's during this period that we see the standing army forged as the monarch's sword of power. Without a standing army, a king is just a windbag in fancy clothes, you know that. But with a standing army, a king can impose his will on his enemies and engrave his name in history. And absolutely the only names we have from this era are the names of conquering kings. No scientists, no philosophers, no historians, no prophets, just conquerors. Again, nothing cyclic going on here. For the first time in human history, the important people are the people with armies. Now note well that no one thought that the appearance of armies was a bad sign, a sign of distress. They thought it was a good sign. They thought the armies represented an improvement. The water was just getting delightfully warm and no one worried about a few little bubbles. After this point, military needs became the chief stimulus for technological advancement in our culture. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Our soldiers need better armor, better swords, better chariots, better bows and arrows, better scaling machines, better rams, better artillery, better guns, better tanks, better planes, better bombs, better rockets, better nerve gas. Well, you see what I mean. At this point, no one saw technology in the service of warfare as a sign that something bad was going on. They thought it was an improvement. From this point on, the frequency and severity of wars will serve as one measure of how hot the water is getting around our smiling frog. Now, I am fascinating, fascinated, I'm fascinating, I'm fascinated (laughs) with the unprecedented, like that word jumping out, you know, and this is the thing that Quinn is saying is the, the signs of distress, things that have never happened before. So it's easy to look back at history and think, you bastards, like, didn't you know better? But that's the thing. That's the insidious part of it. They didn't. You know, it had never happened before. What the hell is this? So now we've got thousands and thousands of years of war, and we're like, God, look where that shit leads. But back then, can you imagine, like, 
You know, it seemed like something good was happening. Wow, progress, man. We got power. Those mm-hmm. those enemies that we used to have that sometimes we'd win, sometimes they'd win, they never win anymore. God is on our side. Um, and man, that just really, like, thinking about that kind of blows my mind. Mm-hmm. And it gives me more empathy for where we are, you know. It's, it's easy to slip into hating people. I've heard people say, like, um, you know, we're a cancer, we're a disease. And we certainly are acting like it now. But I've got more empathy for how we got to be this way. At first, it didn't look like it. Now our job is to fix it, and it's unprecedented. We have no guidebooks for it. Um, he mentions overworked land, and wow, this this like keeps going right until like you know. Derek Jensen mentions in uh, shit. What's the name of that book? Strangely like war. Mm about the earliest forest, I think he calls, like, the he's talking about the cedars of Lebanon. These used to be huge forests, and it's where civilization, the cradle of civilization, and now it's a desert. Mm. You know, deserts, one of his quotes that I love the most is, forests precede us, deserts dog our heels. Mm. And we see it right up until recent American history, U.S. history, the Dust Bowl. Yeah. Fucking Oklahoma, under this form of totalitarian agriculture, just fucking dies and gets blown all across the country um, until in the 40s and 50s all these nasty ass chemicals that got developed by uh, during World War II start getting shot into the soil to kind of compensate in a very unnatural way to give us just a little bit longer but now after that Dust Bowl era we're just buying time this is not sustainable this is not natural anymore it's chemicals it's like it was doomed from its first idea it just bought us a little more time Supposedly to do stupid shit like terraform Mars, apparently. Um, and when he talks about, like, the warlords, you know, it occurs to me that if the resources are slim, he talks about, you know, the butchers, bakers, tailors, and shoemakers, I think they would fight amongst themselves. You know, like, that's what I see. He says every kid knows that. Every school child knows that. But the warlords at that time were kind of a way to deal with a problem. They made it more sustainable, just like the chemicals have bought us some time. The warlords bought them some time. Suddenly resources aren't going around. I think at that point in human history, it might have imploded because just like the rats, you know, in the confined space, people start turning on each other. The community could implode, but the warlords step up and say, whoa, whoa, here's a goal. Let's find a common enemy. Let's take their shit. So now we work together. You don't have to fight amongst yourselves. Now let's get their resources. And I feel like that goal is kind of what kept us going. Like, you know, I've heard it said, and he says it, that violence and war pushes our technology forward. It's that aspiration, that conquering aspiration that has allowed our our culture to exist this long. And I think one of the problems we have now is we're running out of things to take. Like, everybody is us now. So now we are that rat experiment. We're not against a common enemy anymore. You might think, well, what about Russia and China? No, like he says, East and West, twins of a common birth. It's us. We've got nothing to do but fight amongst ourselves now. And I guess that's all I had to say. Do you have anything to say about that section before we move on? Uh, <clears throat> well, I had written down just about like technology always being for or from war. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if that was true. And I guess, you know, from my research, very little research, um, but the first technology was like stone tools and weapons. 
Well, I guess it depends on how you define technology. I think there's a difference between primitive technology. I've heard it said like, well, what about the bow and arrow? But to me, that's a different form of technology. That's that glacially slow technology. It's good enough. It doesn't have to advance Hmm. and improve. I think the competitiveness of technology that's aim is to commit violence on other human beings has to improve as fast as possible because you have to keep that advantage on your enemy. And when your enemy is also advancing technology, like, um, you know, then it really speeds up. So I think at this point in history, when we start turning on people that are just like us, technology has to move faster than ever. It's like the atom bomb. The whole impetus for the atom bomb is Germany's working on the atom bomb. And the whole impetus for Russia getting the atom bomb is America has the atom bomb. Mm -hmm. So it really speeds up then. And I think there's exceptions to every rule. So maybe violence is not the only impetus for technology, again, in the bow, the bow and arrow, but it takes on a really unique flavor and character. And I feel like most of our technology, especially in our violent culture, is based on tech, even the fucking tractor. Like a lot of this. Even the ag- wheel. I mean, if you think about like having. Yeah, nobody needed a wheel before <laughs> like we started doing this kind of life. I yeah. mean, a wheel just wasn't necessary. There's no reason to invent it. And like the tractors and a lot of our agricultural practices are based on things that were invented for war machines during mm-hmm. World War One and World War Two. So, yeah. All right. <clears throat> Here we go. Signs of distress, 3000 to 1400 BCE. I've had a lot of whiskey. Oh, my God. Come on. You can do it. The fire burned on under the cauldron of our culture, and the next doubling of our population took only 1,600 years. There were 100 million humans now at 1400 BCE, probably 90% of them being members of our culture. The Near East hadn't been big enough for us for a long time, Totalitarian agriculture had moved northward and eastward into Russia and India and China, northward and westward into Asia Minor and Europe. I would have loved to do like information, like research on all the different ways that we conquered those areas, because I feel like that would have been really cool. Other kinds of agriculture had once been practiced in all these lands, but now, need I say it, agriculture meant our style of agriculture. The water is getting hotter, always getting hotter. All the old signs of distress are there, of course. Why would they go away? As the water heats up, the old signs just get bigger and more dramatic. War? The wars of the previous age were piddling affairs compared with the wars of this age. This is the Bronze Age. Real weapons, by God. Real armor. Vast standing armies, supported by unbelievable imperial wealth. Unlike signs of war, other signs of distress aren't cast in bronze or chiseled in stone. No one's sculpting friezes to depict life in the slums of Memphis or Troy. No one's writing news stories to expose official corruption in Canossus or Mohenjo-Daro. No one's putting together film documentaries about the slave trade. Nonetheless, there's at least one sign that can be read in the evidence. Crime was emerging as a problem. Looking out into your faces, I see how unimpressed you are with this news. Crime? Crime is universal among humans, isn't it? 
No, actually, it isn't. Misbehavior, yes. Unpleasant behavior, disruptive behavior, yes. People can always be counted on to fall in love with the wrong person or to lose their tempers or to be stupid or greedy or vengeful. But crime is something else, and we all know that. What we mean by crime doesn't exist among tribal peoples, but this isn't because they're nicer people than we are. It's because they're organized in a different way. This is worth spending a moment on. If someone irritates you, let's say by constantly interrupting you while you're talking, this isn't a crime. You can't call the police and have this person arrested, tried, and sent to prison because interrupting people isn't a crime. This means you have to handle it yourself, whatever way you can. But if this same person walks onto your property and refuses to leave, this is a trespass, a crime. And you can absolutely call the police and have this person arrested, tried, and maybe even sent to prison. In other words, crimes engage the machinery of the state, while other unpleasant behaviors don't. Crimes are what the state defines as crimes. Trespassing is a crime, but interrupting is not. And we therefore have two entirely different ways of handling them, which tribal, which people in tribal societies do not. Whatever the trouble is, whether it's bad manners or murder, they handle it themselves, the way you handle the interrupter. Evoking the power of the state isn't an option for them, because they have no state. In tribal societies, crime simply doesn't exist as a separate category of human behavior. Note again, there's nothing cyclical about the appearance of crime in human society. For the first time in history, people were dealing with crime. And note that crime made its appearance during the dawning age of literacy. What this what this means is, as soon as people started to write, they started writing laws. This is because writing enabled them to do something they hadn't been able to do before. Writing enabled them to define in exact, fixed terms the behaviors they wanted the state to regulate, punish, and suppress. From this point on, crime would have an identity of its own as a problem in our culture. Like war, it was destined to stay with us, east and west, right up to the present moment. From this point on, crime would join war as a measure of how hot the water was becoming around our smiling frog. Wow. I can barely read. <laughs> oh my god. Gumby, do you have any anything to say about this section? I bet you do. Well, I really liked what he was saying about crime. I found that really interesting because uh, one of the arguments you get when you're an anarchist and you start debating with people is they talk about, well, if the cops all went away, then what? You know, like, there'd just be rape gangs and there'd be rampant crime. And any anarchist who has, like, done some reading, done some thinking, kind of, like, weighed this this concern has realized that, um, like, it's the state that makes crime, and that's what Quinn's pointing out here. Um, And that crime does not, like... The absence of the state, the government, our culture doesn't equal chaos. Actually, there was a certain harmony that has to happen because the tribe would have imploded by now. A tribe has to have found a harmonic 
balance to exist for their very existence. We don't have that harmonic balance in our culture. The state kind of like keeps it at bay, keeps us from imploding because we don't have these customs, these natural ways of dealing with our neighbors in like ways that don't require cops. So guys with guns show up to like take care of that. And the longer that happens, the less we have skills to like deal with this situation. Um, <clears throat> so that's really interesting. And I also like what he said about literacy, you know, because if you listen to our podcast, Leaf Stories and Singing Stones, we have a quote in there that we read from uh, Abrams. Um, David Abrams. David Abrams, where he talks about the dawn of literacy and how this is one of the, the turning points that like starts carrying us away from animism. You know, instead of like reading the clouds, reading the tracks, reading the bird song, we start developing a closed loop. All we know how to read, what reading becomes, just like he says, agriculture now means our form of agriculture. Civilization now means us, not there are different kinds of civilizations. And like, likewise, reading now means what we write. Hmm. So all that stuff out there, it doesn't matter. They don't know how to talk anyway. They certainly don't know how to write. And that's what literacy means, and that's the only thing literacy means. So I find this period that you're, uh, you're describing in this section really interesting. Yeah, and from an, a, less, a less enlightened mind, I was just... Less enlightened than what? You. Oh, no, you're more enlightened. Oh, come on. Do we really want to debate who's more enlightened? No. I don't think I'm enlightened. So I was just thinking, like, were there really... I mean, were there really no crimes before the laws? And, of course, there could be crimes in tribal societies before writing. Yeah, it's the framing of yeah. it. So the behavior is there. And that's another thing I was thinking is uh what is crime? Yeah. You know, like why does this thing we call crime exist? It's because people are not being served. Like if you're in a tribe and we're all sharing stuff, what benefit would I have to steal something from my neighbor? They're not hoarding it. They wouldn't. Right. They would be like ostracized if they hoarded it. They, everybody would think they were the biggest asshole. There would be nothing but detriments, very little benefit to have more than me. So there'd be no reason to steal. So when we have a culture where these warlords, this hierarchy starts coming into account, suddenly there's people that have more that are right there next to you. And you might be desperate. You might be starving. You don't even have enough to survive. Now we have crime. And who makes the laws? Not the poor people. The rich people, the people that want to protect their excesses. So that's interesting. Amen to that. You done? Yeah, I'm done. Woo! Signs of distress, 1400 to 0 BCE. The fire burned on under the cauldron of our culture, and the next doubling of our population took only 1400 years. There were 200 million humans now at the beginning of our common era. 95% or more of them belonging to our culture, East and West. It was an era of political and military adventurism. Humurabi, and I believe Humurabi, I've heard of the Code of Humurabi. I mm -hmm. think that is known as like one of the first written things. It's I like might, the earliest written uh, laws or something. I might be wrong about that. That's your homework. <laughs> Humurabi made himself master of all Mesopotamia. Sesostris III of Egypt invaded Palestine and Syria. 
Assyria's Tiglath Pilesar I extended his rule to the shores of the Mediterranean. Egyptian pharaoh Shishank overran Palestine. Tiglath Pilesar III conquered Syria, Palestine, Israel, and Babylon. Babylon's second Nebuchadnezzar took Jerusalem and Tyre. Cyrus the Great extended his reach across the whole of the civilized West, and two centuries later, Alexander the Great made the same imperial reach. It was also an era of civil revolt and assassination. The reign of Assyria's Shalmaneser ended in revolution. A revolt in Chalcidus against Athenian rule marked the beginning of the 20-year-long conflict known as the Peloponnesian War. A few years later, Mytilene and Lesbos also revolted. Spartans, Archaeans, and Arcadians organized a rebellion against Macedonian rule. A revolt in Egypt brought Ptolemy III home from its military campaign in Syria. Philip of Macedon was assassinated, as was Darius III of Persia, Seleucus III Soter, and Carthaginian general Hasdrubal, social reformer Tiberius Sempronius Gracchus, and Seleucid king Antiochus VIII. I have no idea how to pronounce most of these names. <laughs> Chinese Emperor Wang Mong and Roman Emperors Claudius and Dominitian. But these weren't the only new signs of stress observable in this age. Counterfeiting, coin debasement, catastrophic inflation, all those nasty tricks were seen regularly now. Famine became a regular feature of life all over the civilized world, as did plague, ever symptomatic of overcrowding and poor sanitation. In 429 BCE, plague carried off as much as two-thirds of the population of Athens. Thinkers in both China and Europe were beginning to advise people to have smaller families. Slavery became a huge international business, and of course would remain one down to the present moment. It's estimated that as at the midpoint of the 5th century, every third or fourth person in Athens was a slave. When Carthage fell to Rome in 146 BCE, 50,000 of the survivors were sold as slaves. In 132 BCE, some, some 70,000 Roman slaves rebelled. When the revolt was put down, 20,000 were crucified, but this was far from the end of Rome's problems with its slaves. But new signs of distress appeared in this period that were far more relevant to our purposes here tonight. For the first time in history, people were beginning to suspect that something fundamentally wrong was going on here. For the first time in history, people were beginning to feel empty. We're beginning to feel that their lives were not amounting to enough. We're beginning to wonder if this is all there is to life. We're beginning to hanker after something vaguely more. For the first time in history, people began listening to religion, religious teachers who promised them salvation. It's impossible to overstate the novelty of this idea of salvation. Religion had been around in our culture for thousands of years, of course, but it had never been about salvation as we understand it, or as the people of this period began to understand it. Earlier gods had been talismanic gods of kitchen and crop, mining and mist, house painting and herding, stroked at need like lucky charms, and earlier religions had been state religions, part of the apparatus of sovereignty and governance, as is apparent from their temples, built for royal ceremonies, not for public, public, popular public devotions. Judaism, Brahmanism, Hinduism, Shintoism, and Buddhism all came into being during this period and had no existence before it. Quite suddenly, after 6,000 years of totalitarian agriculture and civilization building, the people of our culture, East and West, twins of a single birth, were beginning to wonder if their lives made sense, were beginning to perceive a void in themselves that economic success and civil esteem could not fill. We're beginning to imagine that something was profoundly, even innately, wrong with them. That 
like, I, uh, you know, I used to write down like quotes from that section in particular, because that is another thing that fascinated me. We just kind of take it for granted that like, we've got Jesus, we've got Buddha, we've got salvation. Salvation makes sense to us. And it can be kind of hard to realize like, wow, there might have been a time that we didn't feel like there was anything we needed to be saved from. Wow. Um, I was familiar with the word Nebuchadnezzar mentioned in that because uh, I ran into that word first in The Matrix. That was the name of Morpheus's ship. Um, and apparently this guy's in the Bible. And I love how this time period was also the beginning or, you know, maybe the beginning of rebellion. Suddenly people were starting to, like, fight back. You know, in the midst of all the salvation, people kind of thinking, like, something is wrong here. Like, this isn't working. You know, we've got war, constant wars. We've got crime. we got people not being served. This literacy is continuing to alienate us from the, the natural world. Um, and these laws are developed, are, are made and sent over miles and miles over, like, all these different peoples that are getting absorbed into our culture. People are fighting back. Um, and I feel like people are starting to realize we've created a monster. A Leviathan, as Freddie Perlman says in his book. Um, he talks about slavery in this period. You know, we've got the Chattel slavery, and Chattel slavery is like when a person is strictly property. Their kids are your property. Their offspring are your property. Everything about them is their property. They're not regarded at all as a human being. Um, and I'm not saying that that was the, the prominent slavery of this time period because we, you know, I think it's Aesop, perhaps, that was a, uh, he started off as a slave and he became a statesman. You know, that slavery was something that, like, anybody could fall into and anybody could kind of get out of um, back then. There's this great book by Kevin Bales, Disposable People, New Slavery in the Global Economy, um, where he talks about slavery and how it has not gone away, that people were taught that slavery is just chattel slavery. That's the only kind of slavery. And that, that got fixed. Well, for one thing, there are places in the, the world right now that that continues to exist, Um the old-fashioned chattel slavery. Chattel, I don't know how to say that. But the wage slavery is a real thing. That The, the slavery changed over time. Um, that when you have a plantation, you know, you buy a slave, and it's kind of like buying a house. It's a huge investment, and you need to be able to work those slaves to make the money back. So when the Industrial Revolution happened, and suddenly there's factories, there's industry in a different way, everybody's switching over to this other way to make money, it's not profitable to have chattel slaves anymore. you got to find another way to exploit the poor, the people that can't fight back, the, the powerless. So instead of investing in this, this one person that you've got to take care of, you've got to feed, you've got to look after their health, um, why not give them barely enough to survive, maybe not even enough? The barest crumbs, because now... They're disposable people, as Kevin Bales points out. Disposable people. If they can't take care of their own health and their own hunger, fuck them. You know, you replace them. There's other people lined up. And if you listen to our presidential podcast, U.S. Presidents Exposed, we talk about a lot of riots over and over and over where this goes on, where people start, like, trying to fight back, and they just bring in people to replace them. Hmm. Um, strike breakers, often of a different race. Um, they really exploit racial hatred. We still see that in history. You know, when I study uh, slavery and the Civil War and U.S. history, it's not what's in the history books. They really blow up and emphasize the racial angle, which is true. It's there. But there's so much else going on that they allow the ra racism to eclipse. We still see it nowadays in uh, 
political agendas, news stories. So the slavery, you know, it just it's still here. Um, for instance, you know, if you think it's a strictly white, um, black thing, a racial thing, one of the first slave owners in this country was a man named Anthony Johnson, and he was black. Um, not necessarily the first, but one of the first, and he was not the only one. There were black people who had black slaves. There was intertribal slavery in Africa already, but as it's pointed out, it really got inflated by white intervention. Mm. So now it's become much more profitable to take slaves and sell them to white people if you're one of the, the tribesmen and chiefs that has benefited from that. So even though slavery was not completely absent in this, you might say, lever lifestyle, tribal life, it really got turned into something else, blown way up when mm-hmm. the takers showed up. Um, when he talks about the novelty of uh, salvationist religions and these prophets, people that, you know, he talks about, I think it's in my Ishmael, where he starts questioning, why did we have people show up that have to tell us how to live? Why did Jesus and Moses have to tell us how to live? Everything knows how to live. Where the hell did we get this problem of, oh, please show us how to live. We need Ten Commandments. We need this, etc. I thought the one exception that he would always forget was the peacekeeper. I was familiar with the Haudenosaunee here in North America, um, the, the story of the peacekeeper, which is a beautiful story about this this person, this uh, savior, so to speak, that showed up on the shores. He had a stone canoe that magically floated on one of the Great Lakes made of white stone. And he got out and he had these certain magical powers. Like when he talked, people's minds would become divided, it was said. He would confuse people. So if somebody was there to kill him, he would start talking. And suddenly you wouldn't remember, why did I want to kill him? Do I want to kill him? And your mind would just kind of fall apart when he talked. Weird. He had these strange powers. And he coupled up with Hiawatha, who was a sounds like a shaman, a healer, who had the ability to, like, talk to the spirits and have songs that would heal the people. And even, like, he could lay hands on people and draw their venom out, their ugliness, and, like, give them a clear mind. Um, But anyway, I realized that that's not exactly a savior. He kind of showed up as a teacher. Like, we're in this this cycle of violence. Um, So here are some ways to live better. So he's kind of a teacher in the sense of here's how to live, but he never promised them a heaven. It wasn't like we have to escape this place. That's what the Buddha offers, enlightenment to go to nirvana. And I like Buddhism, so I think there's another way to interpret that, but I see where Quinn's coming from. Definitely in Christianity, you know, it's said over and over, this is not your home. Um, If you just like hang in there and serve your masters, you go to heaven, which of course has been exploited over and over to justify slavery, genocide, all kinds of ugly shit. Um, so yeah, I don't know if the peacekeeper is really an exception that Quinn left out, or if it's different enough that like, since he's not offering salvation to another place, he's just a teacher of a better way to live, if that makes you know all the difference. I guess that's something to think about. And I also like the the insight that he has that during this time period, people started thinking there's something wrong with us. I think about Wetico. That's not a word I've ever heard Daniel Quinn use, but I've heard him dance around the idea, the description of it. I wonder if this is one of the times that we began to reflect enough that we got the first glimpses of what we might call Wetico. We started seeing mm-hmm. it in ourselves, and we wanted to be saved from it. Whoa. Oh, my God. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> Thank you for that in-depth analysis of whatever the fuck you just said. 
This is the next section of the Boiling Frog, Signs of Distress, 0 to 1200 CE. The fire burned on under the cauldron of our culture, and the next doubling of our population would take only 1200 years. There would be 400 million humans at the end of it, 98% of them belonging to our culture, each east and west. War, plague, famine, political corruption, and unrest, crime, and economic instability were fixtures of our cultural life and would remain so. Sounds lovely. Salvationist religions had been entrenched in the East for centuries when this period began, but the great empire of the West still saluted its dozens of talismanic deities, from Aeolus to Zephyrus. Those are gods of the wind, by the way. Nonetheless, the ordinary people of that empire, the slaves, the conquered, the peasants, the unenfranchised masses, were ready when the first great salvationist religion of the West arrived on its doorstep. I can only hope that he's being sarcastic right here. It was easy for them to envision humankind as innately flawed and to envision themselves as sinners in need of rescue from eternal damnation. They were eager to despise the world and to dream of a blissful afterlife in which the poor and the humble of this world would be exalted over the proud and the powerful. The fire burned on unwaveringly under the cauldron of our culture, but people everywhere now had salvationist religions to show them how to understand and deal with the inevitable discomfort of being alive. Adherents tend to concentrate on the differences between these religions, but I concentrate on their agreements, which are as follows. The human condition is what it is, and no amount of effort on your part will change that. It's not within your power to save your people, your friends, your parents, your children, or your spouse. But there is one person and only one you can save, and that's you. Nobody can save you but you, and there's nobody you can save but yourself. You can carry the word to others, and they can carry the word to you, but it never comes down to anything but this. Whether it's Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, or Islam, nobody can save you but you, and there's nobody you can save but yourself. Salvation is, of course, the most wonderful thing you can achieve in your life. And you not only don't have to share it, it isn't even possible to share it. As far as these religions have it worked out, if you fail of salvation, then your failure is complete, whether others succeed or not. On the other hand, if you find salvation, then your success is complete, again, whether others succeed or not. Ultimately, as these religions have it, if you're saved, then literally nothing else in the entire universe matters. Your salvation is what matters, nothing else, not even my salvation, except, of course, to me. This was a new vision of what counts in the world. Forget the boiling, forget the pain. Nothing matters but you and your salvation. And I just wrote down, again, like my little insights or questions. Were the slaves, peasants, and unenfranchised masses 
ready and eager for salvationist religions in the West? And like I said, was he being sarcastic? And just looking up very briefly uh, the ways in which salvationist religions were forced upon people, the Yoruba people um, enslaved in the West kept their traditional religions. Pagans kept their traditional religions, even though they might have said like, oh yes, I am Catholic, but they incorporated their own religions within that. And uh, in the colonial Americas, the Inca and Aztec kept their religions, even though they might have agreed to accept what their oppressors were offering just because they had to, they were forced to. Well, I feel like what Quinn's saying here isn't necessarily like that... um you know, these people completely cut ties. I think he said the disenfranchised and the slaves. So I feel like he's talking about the bottom rungs of our culture, like, you know, not the first contact necessarily of people outside of our culture, but like the bottom rungs of the existing culture. And those were the people that were really ready to hear some good news because they hadn't been saved. Now salvation religions have been around for a while and they're still like trapped in this the prison walls of this fucking nightmare and so this idea of like as he says later pie in the sky when you die uh, a freedom a salvation a reward was extremely attractive to them because it was the only thing they could hope for Hmm. because nobody there wasn't really being shown a way out other than you know as we've read in other places some people did like end up being captured by a lever culture, an Indian, and realizing, like, holy shit, this is a much better way of life. Um, you know, the recruitment in Indian tribes of people who wound up there was huge. A lot of people wanted to stay there. Um, and another thing that jumped out at me about that part was this changed sense of self. You know, when you have these salvationist religion that suddenly you can't save anybody else, you can, like, kind of get points with your chosen God by trying to help other people be saved, but what really counts is that you get saved. In other words, if you fail and nobody accepts Jesus, that's not going to be held against you. You still get into heaven because you accepted him. This is a different sense of self. This is a contraction of that sense of self, away from tribe. And I feel like this was one of the big pivotal points in the control of this growing population that is within the taker prison within our culture, our growing, uh, our beginning to be a, a global culture. Now, it's all about you. So you don't have the sense of self of, like, we fight as a people. Um, your fight is just all by yourself. And suddenly, you're much more insecure, because what the hell are you going to do? Um, we're made to feel very small, and I feel like that's kind of what this is about in part. And another thing I found interesting was that Robin Hood, you know, I think about Robin Hood and the story that's been in our culture right at the end of this time period, Teresa described, that's when Robin Hood, that's where he is in history. Um, He's part of this rebellion that's been with us these hundreds and hundreds of years um, of fighting this way of life, this, this way of life that keeps expanding its strategy for controlling the people who don't want to be controlled. If this was such a great way of life, we wouldn't need all these this policing, these laws. These are in place because it doesn't serve the people, hasn't for a long, 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 long time. And people like Robin Hood, for instance, have been trying to fight it, have been trying to resist it. 
So, signs of distress, 1200 to 1700. It was quite a vision, but of course the fire burned on under the cauldron of our culture, and the next doubling of our population would take only 500 years. There would be 800 million humans at the end of it, 99% of them belonging to our culture, east and west. It's the age of bubonic plague, the Mongol horde, the Inquisition. The first known madhouse and the first debtor's prisoner opened in London. Farm laborers revolt in France in 1251 and 1358. Textile workers revolt in Flanders in 1280. Tyler's Rebellion uh, reduces England to anarchy in 1381. I don't know why he chose the word reduced, but... As workers of all kinds unite to demand an end to exploitation... Workers riot and plague and famine racked Japan in 1428 and again in 1461. Russia's serfs rise in revolt in 1671 and 1672. Bohemia's serfs revolt eight years later. The Black Death arrives to devastate Europe in the middle of the 14th century and returns periodically for the next two centuries, carrying off tens of thousands with every outbreak. In two years alone, in the 17th century, it will kill a million people in northern Italy. The Jews make a handy scapegoat for everyone's pain, for everything that goes wrong. France tries to expel them in 1252, later forces them to wear distinctive badges, later strips them of their possessions, later tries to expel them again. Britain tries to expel them in 1290 and 1306. Cologne tries to expel them in 1414. Blamed for spreading the Black Death whenever and wherever it arrives, thousands are hanged and burned alive. Castile tries to expel them in 1492. Thousands are slaughtered in Lisbon in 1506. Pope Paul III walls them off from the rest of Rome, creating the first ghetto. The anguish of the age finds expression in flagellant movements, not flatulent. That's a different kind of thing. <laughs> that foster the idea that God will not be so tempted to find extravagant punishments for us, plagues, famines, wars, and so on, if we preempt him by inflicting extravagant punishments on ourselves. So that's why I fart in the van, Teresa. I'm trying to spare you the wrath of God. <laughs> For a time in 1374, Aix-la-Chapelle is in the grip of a strange mania that will fill the, the streets with thousands of frenzied dancers. Millions will die as famine strikes Japan in 1232, Germany and Italy in 1258, England in 1294 and 1555, all of Western Europe in 1315, Lisbon in 1569, Italy in 1591, Austria in 1596, Russia in 1603, Denmark in 1650, Bengal in 1669, Japan in 1674. Syphilis and typhus make their appearance in Europe. Um, and I've heard perhaps at least syphilis was brought over from America, the one thing that came back. Ergotism, a fungus food poisoning, becomes endemic in Germany, killing thousands. An unknown sweating sickness visits, the, visits and revisits England, killing tens of thousands. Smallpox, typhus, and diphtheria epidemics carry off thousands. Inquisitors develop a novel technique to combat heresy and witchcraft, torturing suspects until they implicate others who are tortured until they implicate others who are tortured until they implicate others ad infinitum. The slave trade flourishes as millions of Africans are transported to the New World. I don't bother to mention war, political corruption, and crime, which continue unabated and reach new heights. There will be few to argue with Thomas Hobbes when, in 1651, he describes the life of man as solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. A few years later, Blaise Pascal will, will note that all men naturally hate one another. Hmm. The period ends in decades of economic chaos exacerbated by revolts, famines, and epidemics. 
Christianity becomes the first global salvationist religion, penetrating the Far East and the New World. At the same time, it fractures. The first fracture is resisted hard, but after that, disintegration becomes commonplace. Please don't overlook the point I'm making here. I'm not collecting signals of human evil. These are reactions to overcrowding. Too many people competing for too few resources, eating rotten food, drinking fouled water, watching their families starve, watching their families fall to the plague. <clears throat> so, I find it interesting, you know, when he talks about all the stuff that happened to the Jews. Because um, all you really hear about is Moses, you know, you hear that expulsion of, like, the Pharaoh having the Jews as slaves, and Moses, like, frees them. And you hear, of course, about the Holocaust, which, you know, we've been learning more and more is actually, you know, uh, fueled by American monetary interest. You know, it's all, you know, chalked up to Hitler's Nazism, which is basically the Nazi war machine is an American business. Um, from the motors in their tanks and everything made by Ford to uh, the Coca-Colas that um, Coke is selling the Nazis so they can pop open a cold Coke as they're bombing our troops. Um, to the gas used to kill the Nazis that were actually designed by um, Rockefeller and his associates. And the railroad tracks leading right up to Auschwitz were built by Americans. Um, it just goes on and on. So anyway, sidetrack there, because I just find that like really, uh, to say interesting, alarming. Um, to see that the Jews have been persecuted so many times throughout history... And you wonder why. You know, I think part of it, obviously, like Quinn says, is the Jews are used as a scapegoat. But then you look at this, like, the Abrahamic religion. You know, the Jews are spreading this. You know, Christianity stems off of, from this. And so they're going around feeling like they are the chosen people. You know, you got to wonder what that translates to. Like, you know, it kind of sets them up to be a scapegoat in a lot of ways. And because of... Um, you know, all the things that have happened to them, just like any group of people that are, you know, set adrift, that have to travel. One of the things that really spreads plagues is traveling people. That's why, like, the coronavirus right now is so alarming. We've got this fucking global network, so it just spreads from China to Italy to America to maybe the whole fucking globe because of travelers. Hmm. If we were just isolated tribes like we were for millions of years— you know, it was rare that you would have a virus like this because most of those tribes didn't keep animals in small cages. And if they did have it, it didn't tend to spread, you know, from tribe to tribe the way it does now. So when you got the Jews, they were probably justifiably accused of spreading these plagues, at least in part. Not because there's something wrong with the Jews. This isn't a racist statement. It's because factually they were traveling, just like mm -hmm. gypsies. Any group of people traveling is going to spread the plague, just like we see it now. And I also think about Israel now, you know, about how, like, these people that were victims of the Holocaust, you know, Israel is guilty of a lot of ugly shit. Um, and, yeah, there's just, you know, that it's a fascinating thing to study Jewish history. Um, you know, you can, you can study it and see a lot of things that aren't taught, because we're taught a very, like, you cannot say anything bad against Jewish people kind of history. But... Hmm. There's bad things to be said about any people in our culture, and Jews have played their part. So I feel like that's a really interesting thing to study that's not, you know, anti-Semitic or racist. Um, they definitely didn't deserve, like I've known Jewish people, they're just people, you know, people are people. Um, so no doubt a lot of innocent people died 
during this time period and still can be persecuted. Um, and oh, I thought I had something else to say. Well, I guess, you know, I guess I'm just thinking about these plagues, you know, this virus. Oh, do you want to talk a little bit about what you learned about viruses? Oh, my God. Viruses are so cool. We don't know anything about them. They are, like, so complex, and we think he's filling up the glass again with whiskey. We think that they're bad. I'm but a big boy. I know how much to drink. They're not good nor they're, nor bad. They're just what they are, just like us. And basically, viruses have a really cool method of communicating and getting done what they need to get done. And that's actually part of our evolution. That's what makes us who we are as a species. And so in short, we really need to examine this germ theory, like what we think of as bad and uh, like eliminating viruses from the face of the earth because it actually has something to do with our evolution. We don't understand it fully. The scientists that study it as their job don't understand it fully. And I just think it's mind-blowing, and you should really look it up. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting because I couple that with what I already knew about viruses. So Teresa's doing this research because of all the coronavirus and everything, and we're trying to – I feel like it's both getting blown up, you know, by the media for who knows what ulterior motives. Well, I guess we'll see in time. Um, But at the same time, it is a dangerous thing, and I've even heard it's possibly engineered by the CIA. But either way, you know, it's a a dangerous thing. So Teresa and I are trying to avoid it. You know, we're doing the house sitting in the middle of fucking Durham City right now, and there's a computer (laughs) virus attacking us at the same time. There's this Russian malware uh, thing that has shut down a lot of the systems, computer systems, around uh, Durham. So, like, we're trying to get books from the library. Like, things are just really kind of fucking chaotic, and it's – at the same time, it's like bloody inconvenient. It's also sort of exciting because <laughs> it's like, wow, this might be, if it isn't the actual beginning of our, our of the end of our culture, this is sort of a taste of what it's going to feel like. And uh, I don't know, I feel really fucking optimistic. Um, <laughs> I love that our culture is getting really wobbly right now and it's weakened. But anyway, Teresa and I are trying to park our van like out in the country as much as we can, shit in the woods, uh, cook around campfires, just kind of self-quarantine because living in a van we use public places more than other people um when we don't consciously try not to so we're trying to kind of pull away from that because we're thinking man if it hits durham and sounds like maybe it already is hitting durham um durham durham that uh we would be the first people to get it just because we are always where all the people are so and we don't even know what the hell this virus is like why people are so panicked there's theories about what it is not to get on a tangent but yeah and these viruses that quinn's describing here in this time period um they all almost all if not all of them come from animals mutated viruses that were originally in animals and they didn't 
create a plague in the animals. So this domestication of animals, again, this taker way of life, civilization. Civilization is itself a sickness. It makes people sick. And this is just one example. You start trapping these animals, taking away their freedom, not treating them like they're living beings, but like commodities to be just used and processed. And suddenly you create an unnatural situation. You get this virus that mutates and jumps to the people. And when you think about what kind of virus to do that, the most aggressive ones. So we're selecting for these really aggressive viruses that create these plagues. That's why when the Europeans came to North America, they didn't pick up viruses, they brought viruses. Um, And I find that fascinating, you know, that like viruses have been with us all this time and studies are suggesting they're not, they're not good or bad, but they have sped up our evolution. Mm -hmm. They change our DNA. So, you know, anything we've become, we owe a large part to the viruses, but something different has happened in our civilization. Viruses are playing a different role. And I don't know, I got to think about that more. Um, I don't even know what that means, but it's an interesting topic that seems so relevant to all the news and shit we're hearing now. Indeed. And now the next segment of Come Quinn's on, if you can Boiling talk to your Frog. Mama drunk, you can, like, you can read uh, that book. Signs of Distress 1700 to 1900. I have to close one eye to see the letters, by the way. The fire burned on under the cauldron of our culture, and the next doubling of our population would take only 200 years. There would be one and a half billion humans at the end of it, all but half a percent of them belonging to our culture, East and West. It would be a period in which, for the first time, Religious prophets would attract followers simply by predicting the imminent end of the world, in which the opium trade would become an international big business, sponsored by the East India Company and protected by British warships, in which Australia, New Guinea, India, Indochina, and Africa would be claimed or carved up as colonies by the major powers of Europe in which indigenous peoples all around the world would be wiped out in the millions by diseases brought to them by Europeans. Measles, pellagra, which is a... I think pellagra, but I'm not sure. Pellagra, which is like a um, niacin deficiency. Whooping cough, smallpox, cholera, with millions more herded onto reservations or killed outright to make room for white expansion. More on that later. This isn't to say that native peoples alone were suffering. 60 million Europeans died of smallpox in the 18th century alone. Tens of millions died in cholera epidemics. I'd need 10 minutes to list all the dozens of fatal appearances that plague, typhus, yellow fever, scarlet fever, and influenza made during this period. And anyone who doubts the integral connection between agriculture and famine need only examine the record of this period. Crop failure and famine, crop failure and famine, crop failure and famine, again and again, all over the civilized world. The numbers are staggering. Ten million starved to death in Bengal, 1769. Two million in Ireland and Russia in 1845 and 1846. Nearly 15 million in China and India from 1876 to 1879. In France, Germany, Italy, Britain, Japan, 
and elsewhere, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands died in other famines too numerous to mention. As the cities became more crowded, human anguish reached highs that would have been unimaginable in previous ages, with hundreds of millions inhabiting slums of inconceivable squalor, prey to disease borne by rats and contaminated water, without education or means of betterment. Crime flourished as never before and was generally punished by public maiming, branding, flogging, or death. Imprisonment as an alternate form of punishment developed only late in the period. Mental illness also flourished as never before. Madness, derangement, whatever you choose to call it. No one knew what to do with lunatics. They were typically incarcerated alongside criminals, chained to walls, flogged, forgotten. Economic instability remained high, and its consequences were felt more widely than ever before. Three years of economic chaos in France led directly to the 1789 revolution that claimed some 400,000 victims, burned, shot, drowned, or guillotined. Periodic market collapses and depressions wiped out hundreds of thousands of businesses and reduced millions to starvation. The age also ushered in the Industrial Revolution, of course, but this didn't bring ease and prosperity to the masses. Rather, it brought utterly heartless and grasping exploitation, with women and small children working 10, 12, and more hours a day for starvation wages in sweatshops, factories, and mines. You can find the atrocities for yourself if you're not familiar with them. In 1787, it was reckoned that French workers labored as much as 16 hours a day and spent 60% of their wages on a diet consisting of little more than bread and water. It was the middle of the 19th century before the British Parliament limited children's work days to 10 hours. Hopeless and frustrated, people everywhere became rebellious, and governments everywhere answered with systematic repression, brutality, and tyranny. General uprisings, Peasant uprisings, colonial uprisings, slave uprisings, worker uprisings. There were hundreds. I can't even list them all. East and West, twins of a common birth. It was the age of revolutions. Tens of millions of people died in them. As ordinary habitual interactions between governed and governors, revolt and repression were new. You understand characteristic signs of distress of the age. The wolf and the wild boar were deliberately exterminated in Europe during this period. The great auk of Edley Island near Iceland was hunted to extinction for its feathers in 1844, becoming the first species to be wiped out for purely commercial purposes. In North America, in order to facilitate railway construction and undermine the food base of hostile native populations, professional hunters destroyed the bison herds, wiping out as many as three million in a single year. Only a thousand were left by 1893. Thank you, Columbus Delano, for that idea. In this age, people no longer went to war to defend their religious beliefs. They still had them, still clung to them. But the theological divisions and disputes that once seemed so murderously important 
had been rendered irrelevant by more pressing material concerns. The consolations of religion are one thing, but jobs, fair wages, decent living and working conditions, freedom from oppression, and some faint hope of social and economic betterment are another. It would not, I think, be too fanciful to suggest that the hopes that had been invested in religion in former ages were in this age being invested in revolution and political reform. The promise of pie in the sky when you die was no longer enough to make the misery of life in the cauldron endurable. In 1843, the young Karl Marx called religion the opium of the people. From the greater distance of another century and a half, however, it's clear that religion was in fact no longer very effective as a narcotic. Yeah, we just watched a movie called Black 47 about that period of the potato famine in Ireland. That was a good movie. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to just add in there, um, <clears throat> reiterate that our culture was so bad it was becoming a, a trade to cultivate opium and distribute it worldwide. And that mental illness was like never before. That was our culture. That was our culture. Um, yeah, that opium trade, I think that's a really interesting thing that we've gotten to a point in our history where you just read that we're starting to numb ourselves like with this new thing that's like being shipped all over the place, you know, and that the drug culture is still so strong. Like it's the, it's the way so many of us like find one way, like we're drinking whiskey right now, you know, you got <laughs> potheads, you got people on opium, you got like, you know, thing people that use technology in the same way they use drugs or sex or anything, you know, some way to numb yourself. We need to, to somehow medicate ourselves to survive this. And just the, the thought of cities being so overcrowded and we're in the inner, inner city right now. Um, and I just wanted to, to talk a little bit about that, like just this neighborhood that we're in. Are you talking about gentrification? Yeah. Yeah, this white expansion Quinn mentions, it's still happening. Um, hell, I ran into this, like talking to somebody, I was talking about gentrification and he defended it. And it was interesting because all the ways this white guy defended his gentrification are the same fucking arguments that you would imagine a white person would, would defend colonization 200 years ago of why they were in the Indians' territory. They also thought they were improving the land and that the Indians were just a bunch of fucking savages trashing their own neighborhood. Look, we're in a neighborhood that has been historically black. It is being bought up systematically by rich people who are then kicking out the black people and basically destroying their history, their community, everything that they've held onto that's important to them. And as we walk these streets in this neighborhood, I mean, the guy that, that is employing me for this pet sitting job, he's a super nice guy, you know, from what I know of him. But the faces that I see of people that look at me in this neighborhood, they are not happy with the situation. Yeah, and these black people have already been pushed into, like Durham used to be almost completely a ghetto. And this is one of those neighborhoods that was like more recently a ghetto. I mean, it still looks run down in places. You see the gentrification popping up piecemeal with the, right the nicer a, houses. We're right across the street from a school that had been a segregated school until, I don't even know, like... 1963, when it was burned down. Hmm. Yeah, and so 
you know, this is what we did to the Indians, too. We pushed them into a little corner, and then they don't even get to be there because we feel entitled. And this is largely, I feel like, um, a liberal mindset is that we even infiltrate them and we try to frame it in a way of like, oh, we're all one community. You know, that's what we see around here. We don't see the Republicans who have their own set of like bullshit. They're already rich, so they've got their big fucking wasteful houses out in the country. We see very liberal people who feel very proud that they are so non-racist as to, you know, brush elbows with the poor black people. But they're so blind to the bigger picture of what that represents, that that is the continuing colonization. Um, where'd you go, Teresa? I'm right here. Well, come on back. This is your section. <laughs> mm. So, yeah, this gentrification. And one of the things Teresa talks about, like the guy being a really nice guy, you can see from within the game of our culture what we're taught that we have to do to survive. It makes complete sense. You move into a poor neighborhood. You buy a house for a good price. That seems like a smart thing to do. You know, a black person would do that. Anybody would do that. You know, you get a deal. And if you're not racist, then you just blend in and you like, you know, you're friendly with your neighbors and everything. But the effects of playing that game, there's no way to play it and be the good guy. This game is rigged all the way down. It is the game. So just by not rejecting this culture, by trying to buy a house, uh, move into a neighborhood, doing all the things we're taught you should do to be a part of this culture, you hurt people. Just the people moving in here. They might be really nice people with the best of intentions, but just by moving in here, they're pushing the poor people who you can judge all you want. You know, the trash in their fucking front yard. They don't bother to clean it up. The drugs they might be taking or selling. Just like the rest of us, people are doing whatever they have to to survive this fucking prison of our culture, and they're getting pushed out. Where do they go now that this liberal has moved in and bought a house, no matter what their intentions are? And you were talking about the other day how you thought, and we talk about Durham a lot because we live here and we know it more than areas in the rest of the world. But if you think about if there's poor people in one section of the city, and they're then getting pushed out by gentrification, rich people moving in and displacing them. They're going to go to another part of the city where they can sustain their life, where they can survive. And that part of the city is then going to be saturated with poor people, with people that can't make it in these gentrified communities. So Gumby was talking about how you were thinking like, Maybe gentrification was like reaching a peak and maybe it was going to go back to being more yeah, ghetto like, or something. Yeah, like a lot of cities, Durham has these like bumper stickers you see sometimes like keep Durham dirty. Um, but Keep it, Austin weird. Yeah, it used to be really dirty. Like Durham was a really had a reputation for crime and drugs and now it's getting all gentrified. And, you know, there are things as white people, Teresa and I, you know, being white, it's like, oh, look at the nice little coffee shop we can sit at and like, you know, like just sit there and like get Wi-Fi and everything. I mean, we benefit from the gentrification in ways that we did not benefit from a neighborhood that we did not feel welcome in. But at the same time, as Teresa points out a lot, we want to eventually, we imagine a world, a healthy world to be a place that we are not welcome everywhere, that we have tribes, we have no entitlement, we don't belong in this neighborhood, even though, you know, like I said, without the gentrification, we'd have no reason to be here. We'd be, it'd be kind of a dangerous, dangerous neighborhood for us to be in. Yeah, think about if you didn't feel comfortable anywhere, even in the place where you grew up, that's what these people are going through. 
And I just don't think, I mean, you can talk about fairness, whether it's a reality or not, but when you don't have a place in this world, think about those mice experiments. Think about what that means when you don't have a, a meaningful social role in your reality, what that devolves into. Mm-hmm. And I like how, as he's pointing out the things that our culture's doing to the blacks and the Indians, how he says, and it's not just them, and he points out, you know, things that are happening to a lot of the white people then too. I feel like this racial card is getting played to death. Yes, there is racism. It's not a complete lie. No doubt there's racism. I mean, anybody that denies racism is a damn fool. But it's used to distract us because we have also things that tie us together. If you're a poor white person, you have so many of the same common enemies as the black people, as the Indians. And if oh, all yeah. you're being taught is the fucking race card, then that keeps us divided. Um, the liberals are a huge part playing into this, but it's not just the liberals. It's widespread media. I just feel like the liberals are kind of like in certain respects used um, where they think they're rebelling against the culture. They think they're trying to stand up against racism, but the way they do it, they're actually keeping us divided. They're keeping the strength in all the wrong hands because what really unites us is to realize, shit, you're hungry. I'm hungry too. I grew up in a black neighborhood because it's all we could afford when I was a kid. And we were the poorest people in the neighborhood. And all the black people around us knew it. Um, it, it was before you ever heard the word gentrification. It might have been the beginning of gentrification. I don't know, but it sure didn't feel like that to us. Um, but we felt united. You know, all my friends when I was a little kid were black because we had, you know, we'd go in and like shoplifting was a thing we did growing up. It made sense to us because we're all fucking poor. I was the poorest one, but we all were kind of poor. So this distraction of racism really pisses me off. I'm so fucking sick of hearing about racist cops. Fact is, cops treat anybody who's poor like shit. I know a lot of white people who have been fucked over, including myself, by the police. And I don't know many rich people, whether you're black or white or any color, that gets fucked over by the police. You can find cases of it, but uh, I'm talking about generally, you know? Let's find the things that bind us together so we can fight as a team. And then, you know... Like I said, I like to picture a world where we're tribes, you know? Maybe we divide into tribes, so we're around people that share our values. It doesn't mean we're, like, better than anybody else. It means that we're in a place that we don't have to constantly fight. Yeah, I don't feel comfortable in this neighborhood. I feel like I'm intruding on a very sacred space. And I know that sounds really, um, I don't know, dramatic or something, but I'm experiencing that. Mm -hmm. And... I don't think that the person that just asked us the other day or, or mentioned to us, hey, I'm selling this house across the street for $185,000. I don't think he realized that we were living out of a minivan. But you I, told him. Yeah, I told him that. I think he was just looking at us like, oh, they're coming out of a house that cost to be honest, 300 something thousand dollars. And so they probably have $185,000 in their savings and they might want to invest and buy a rental property. And, you know, maybe it being across the street, it might be a, a something that's attractive to them. Whereas the people that got pushed out of this neighborhood might not have gotten $185,000. They might have gotten enough to pay back the fucking debt that they had and move into a fucking hotel. And if you're at a, best, and if you're a white person like that guy that uh, Teresa's talking about, he did a very smart thing. It seems like there's nothing wrong with that. 
But that's what I'm saying. There is no good way to play this game. We've got to reject it. We've got to reject it completely. Um, if you play the game, no matter what your intentions are, you end up fucking somebody over. You're part of the colonization, and it's invisible to you because it's what we're all taught as just the norm. It's civilization. It's how you're taught to be a human being, and it's bullshit. I also, like, in this time period, you know, 1877 is a year I think I talk about a lot as the, the great uprising in America against the railroad companies, you know. I love, like Quinn points out, this being such an era of revolt. Like, that's what our history, uh, our studies in history for the presidents have shown as well. Um, and also he describes this growing war against the earth, you know, instead of other peoples, it's beginning to be against the earth itself in like a new way. It's like kicked up a gear. Now we're wiping out species intentionally, um, you know, like the buffalo and And the auk. Yeah. I mean, how fucked up is that? Like it's, it's no longer veiled. It's no longer like, oh, the earth is unimportant because you need to work to get to heaven. It's like, no, actually the earth is your fucking enemy. And, uh, that's what our science is all about, is how to subdue it, how to control it, how to exploit it. And, wow, what a time period this is. And I'd just like to like finish that by saying that the pie in the sky when you die, that was a lyric of a Joe Hill song for the Wobblies, I believe. <laughs> Hobo. And I like how Quinn talks about how, for the first time, religions can convert people by just saying the world's about to end. We still have this fantasy with us today. Go to the movies. Um, look at how many movies are about the end of the world. Look at how many TV shows, The Fucking Walking Dead. We are so eager for this shit to end. We all know something's wrong, and we don't know how to stop it, and we've lost faith that we can stop it. So we're waiting for that meteorite, those machines, those zombies, something. And it's interesting to think that that fantasy goes back at least to 17 or 1800s. <coughs> Anything else? That's it. Signs of Distress, 1900 to 60. The fire burned on under the cauldron of our culture, and the next doubling of our population would take only 60 years. Only 60. There would be 3 billion humans at the end of it, all but perhaps two-tenths of a percent of them belonging to our culture, east and west. What do I need to say about the water steaming in our cauldron in this era? Is it boiling yet, do you think? Does the first global economic collapse beginning in 1929 look like a sign of distress to you? Do two cataclysmic world wars look like signs of distress to you? Stand off a few thousand miles and watch from outer space as 65 million people are slaughtered on battlefields or blasted to bits in bombing strikes, as another hundred million count themselves lucky to escape merely blinded, maimed, or crippled. I'm talking about a number of people equal to the entire human population in the golden age of classical Greece. I'm talking about the number of people you would destroy if today you dropped hydrogen bombs on Berlin, Paris, Rome, London, New York City, Tokyo, and Hong Kong. I think the water is hot, ladies and gentlemen. I think the frog is boiling. (laughs) And I really don't have much to add to that. I mean, wow, you know, like, it's so much worse than... Even Quinn says in those couple of paragraphs, you know, from our research, he doesn't mention, like, you know, so much of the CIA, the, the fucking MK Ultra, you know, like, this is a dark period in history. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Quite. And the last section, Signs of Distress, 1960 through 1996. 
The next doubling of our population occurred in only 36 years, bringing us to the present moment when there are 6 billion humans on this planet, all but a few scattered millions belonging to our culture, East and West. The voices in our long chorus of distress have been added a few at a time, age by age. First came war, war as a social fixture, war as a way of life. For 2,000 years or more, War seems to have been the only voice in the chorus. But before long, it was joined by crime. Crime as a social fixture, as a way of life. And then there was corruption. Corruption as a social fixture, as a way of life. Before long, these voices were joined by slavery. Slavery as a world trade and as a social fixture. Soon revolt followed. Citizens and slaves rising up to vent their rage and pain. Next, as population pressures gained in intensity, famine and plague found their voices and began to sing everywhere in our culture. Vast classes of the poor began to be exploited pitilessly for their labor. Drugs joined slavery as world trade. The laboring classes, the so-called dangerous classes, rose up in rebellion. The entire world economy collapsed. Global industrial powers played at world domination and genocide. And then came us, 1960 to present. Of what does our voice sing in the chorus of distress? For some four decades, the water has been boiling around the flog. Flog. Frog. <laughs> one by one, thousand by thousand, million by million, its cells have shut down, unequal to the task of holding on to life. What are we looking at here? I'll give you a name, and you can tell me if I've got it right. I'm prepared to name it. Cultural Collapse. This is what we sing of in the chorus of distress now. Not instead of all the rest, but in addition to all the rest. This is our unique contribution to our culture's howl of pain. For the very first time in the history of the world, we bewail the collapse of everything we know and understand. The collapse of the structure on which Everything has been built from the beginning of our culture until now. The frog is dead, and we can't imagine what this means for us or for our children. We're terrified. Have I got it right? Think about it. If I've got it right, there's nothing more to say, of course. But if you think I've got it right, Come back tomorrow night, and I'll continue from this point. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the Boiling Frog essay. Um, as Teresa said, and as Quinn said in that section, this was written in 1996, and he says there are 6 billion people on the earth now in 1996. Um, What's the world population now? Well, that's where I was going. Thank you for asking, Teresa. <laughs> that's why I brought that up.
Um, but that used to be something I'd hear about, like talked about more when I was a kid. There's even like there used to be movies, you know, like Soylent Green that would deal directly with overpopulation. It seems to be something that just kind of gets avoided. Nobody wants to talk about it anymore. I don't hear anybody talking about it anymore, except for like, you know, people like us, like anarchists, people that are like Daniel Quinn. Um, but here's the official, uh, I guess, status of where we're at. So six billion in 1996, and now we're 2020, and the current population is supposedly 7.8 billion now. So it's gone up 1.8 billion since Daniel Quinn wrote those words. Um, some of the forecasts for what's going to happen. Some people say that by 2100 it'll stabilize at around 11.2 billion and then slowly decline. Wow. Um, other people say that it may peak around 9 billion by 2050, which is 30 years from now, before slowly declining. Um, supposedly, fertility rates are going down, sort of like Teresa's description of these mice in the study. Um, so... Who knows what's happening? You know, we don't even understand what it is to be the human animal. We're so busy being the human animal and trying to control what we are that we don't really know what we actually are. Maybe there's something bigger than us that's, like, actually through us. Maybe we just stop having babies. Like, there was that movie Children of Men. You know, that was kind of the scenario there where, like, people just stopped having babies. Um, but I've got some questions about these forecasts. One thing... I don't feel like they're addressing climate change. If we keep doing what we're doing, even for the next 30 years, how's that going to affect things? You know, like, it sounds very reassuring, like, oh, it's going to cap out and then slowly decline. But if it already looks like this at 7.8 billion, best case scenario, it goes up, what was that, 1.2 billion to peak at 9 billion. That's a lot more fucking people. Worst case scenario, you know, according to the forecast, all the way up to... 11.2 billion. Damn, that is a lot of fucking people. And then you think about, you know, some of the things we're doing, like development. We're trying hard, supposedly, to help the third world countries. And what do we mean by help? We mean to help them live like us, a way of life, a standard of living, living that is hugely impactful. So we're going to try to get these growing populations, even if they seem to be slowing down, to get more people to live like us, because we certainly are showing no signs of rejecting this way of life ourselves. Um, that's not taken into account. And fertility clinics. If these fertility rates are going down, why the fuck do we have these clinics that are trying to fight the human body's natural response to the situation and Again, feeding to this entitlement. I, I listened to these commercials, and a woman said, all I really wanted, all I've ever wanted is to have a baby. Well, tough fucking shit. You know, maybe that's not your destiny. You're not entitled to that baby. And looking around at these people having babies, what kind of fucking world are you bringing them into? I'm so sick of these people just cranking out a baby because they wanted a baby. They want to take care of a little baby. Oh, precious little baby. And they're fucking just continuing this way of life that's destroying the world and fucking just not giving that baby a future. You are not entitled to have a baby. If your body does not produce a baby, there might be a fucking reason. And more and more, you know, we're taught the this the scientific way of thinking. We just got to figure it out. We can have whatever we want if we figure it out, and we deserve to have whatever we want if we figure it out. You feel like you weren't born the right gender? God made a fucking mistake. Now, I'm not saying, like... You know, like, 
you can do whatever you want with your body. But I feel like when we start taking this invasive science to intervene, to, to change things so dramatically, we are getting into a dark realm. Um, and I don't know. That's just what makes sense to me. That's what I feel passionately. And, uh, yeah, do you have anything to say about population? No, I don't. Not more than what you had to say. Yeah, so all these factors and more, you know, these little numbers are so reassuring. Like, oh, she's going to stabilize and take care of them itself. I don't buy it. And, yeah, it's it's an alarming situation. And our own personal, you know, we just did the Fire Truck You podcast, and one of our big fuck yous is people. People <laughs> everywhere. People like in North Carolina, I grew up here. I've been here since I was four. It used to be you'd walk down the road barefoot and a lot of the roads were dirt and you'd go fishing at a pond and, you know, there's the people driving by or whatever. All these places, every place I know is fucking increasing in people. Those same towns are all paved now. There's full of people. You can't get to the fucking pond because now there's gates because there's so many people that people just aren't willing to turn the other way and let you fish in their pond because, hell, it might get taken, taken over by all these fucking people. It's an ugly thing. I'm seeing the effects of overpopulation already. The, the traffic congestion. My God. I can point to so many roads that, like, you got to avoid at certain times of day or you're not getting anywhere. They're not working. Things are breaking down. Things are breaking down right now with the coronavirus, the fucking cyber bug. It's all breaking down. And it all ties back to foundation, um, ties back to population. You know, it's the foundation for these problems. Even more than the way we're living. If you had little groups of tribal people that were living the way we were and there was like a whole lot less people, the world would seem like it would go on forever. But the very thing that this way of living does is increase the population, as Quinn keeps pointing out again and again in so many of his books. Um, I actually wanted to have more criticism of Quinn. I wanted to kind of be a foil for him because I thought it would be a more interesting podcast. I wanted to see what other people said that hate Quinn. And, uh, I looked up these websites, and they're all bullshit. The arguments against Quinn are <laughs> fucking bullshit. They're all, like, intellectual... Arrogance. Really, yeah. Snobbery. Like, it's written by some kind of fucking professor that's like, oh, he obviously hasn't taken a course in humanities, and, you know, all the arguments were just bullshit. And I was prepared... to fallacies. I was prepared to, like, accept and share these. I'm not a, uh, a disciple of Quinn. But I couldn't find a fucking good argument against him. So... You know, if you think you've got a good argument that's not just not the same old bullshit of you thinking you're smarter than him, that you've actually got a good argument, we'd love to hear it. Um, and I wanted to recommend one book as we're about to end this podcast, which is Civilized to Death, The Price of Progress by Christopher Ryan. I feel like anybody who has appreciated Quinn's books will appreciate these ideas. They really build on these same ideas. Um, the Price of Progress, Christopher Ryan. And even the author says by the end, he's kind of losing steam. And that's kind of the way I felt reading it. You know, the end, I wasn't too happy with the way it ended. It was kind of like, wah, wah. but right up until the end, man, the, the things he's, insights he's making and the things he's saying are like, wow, they are really interesting. So you want to take us out? Messenger. I really do. Can you help me find that quote, please, by the guy from Cincinnati? Oh, I don't know what you did with it. Oh, come on. It's in this notebook. You had it. I was trying to look for it, but I can't focus my eyes. So to take us out, we really thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you have any information you want to add, any criticisms, any like arguments you want to present, Please visit our website. 
escapingsociety.weebly.com. And there was this guy that wrote in, and I wanted to share his comment. His name is Jason. And he's from Cincinnati, Ohio. And we have so many listeners from all around the world. And I'm from Ohio. And I didn't pick this because I'm from Ohio, but I just thought it was relevant to this podcast. So he wrote to Gumby. He said, hello, Gumby. Just wanted to say, I appreciate your pod. Your No. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate your perspectives and am a fan of your podcast. It's nice to hear from someone else who's read a lot of the same books I've read and discover how much our ideas relate to the others. Much love. I was listen I was listening bro love. I was listening to this earlier and wondered if you're familiar with Robert Wolf. And I, Jason, am not familiar with Robert Wolf, but I just looked him up on the Wikipedia. And he appears to be an anarchist, so now I'm intrigued, and I appreciate your comment. Yeah, Jason sent a link of a podcast he did, but I couldn't access it. I'm not very tech-savvy. Um, but yeah, it sounds like he might be a pretty cool guy to check out, so I haven't checked him out myself yet, but uh, any listeners, Robert Wolf, uh, maybe give him a listen and see what you think. And please, I hope you're surviving the coronavirus outbreak in Cincinnati. All right, is there anything else? I can't. Oh, on the floor. Yeah, let me, uh, let, let's just let you pass out. All right. Oh we got through it. So we'll see you next time. And uh, thank you for listening. I was really happy to be able to share this. This is one of my favorite essays, The Boiling Frog. Thank Bye. So thank you for listening to our song. It's not very good and it went kind of long. Don't care if you like it because we'll be gone over that next horizon. We ain't got no address.